Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Acts. And uh, if you did not bring your Bible with you this morning, you'll find one underneath the chair in front of you. And in in that Bible, you'll find our passage on page 921 and 922. So I invite you to take a copy of Scripture and follow along. Acts chapter 13, and I'm actually going to begin reading for us in verse 13, and then I'll read through to the end of the chapter. Um, It's uh, somewhat of a lengthy passage, but I think it's uh, well worth it for us to take the time to read through it. So we'll begin in verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations and the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead." And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David." Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, 
a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, once again, we thank you for your word. And Father, we commit this time into your hands. We pray that you would help us and give us insight and wisdom and understanding into your word. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would take your word and that you would change us for our good and for the glory of your name. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, at the beginning of chapter 13, we saw this several weeks back, the church in Antioch sends out Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then really the rest of chapter 13 and chapter 14 of the book of Acts is a record of Paul's first missionary journey. As we look at chapter 13 this morning, I want us to focus on Paul's sermon that was delivered to Antioch of Pisidia. Now, there are a number of other stops that Paul makes in chapter 13 before he comes to Antioch of Pisidia. Um, You can read about those in verses uh, 4 through 12. But this stop is unique in this sense that Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, takes the time to record Paul's sermon that he delivered in Antioch. So up to this point, we know that Paul had had many opportunities to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, but it's just noted the actual proclamation of the gospel or the message that Paul shares on those occasions is not recorded. And so what we have here in Acts chapter 13 is the first of Paul's recorded sermons in the Bible. Now this is significant because as I mentioned earlier, chapter 13 marks the beginning of this great missionary outreach to the Gentiles. You'll remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this really sets the structure for the whole book of Acts. Jesus says to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so far we've seen in the book of Acts that the gospel has gone to Jerusalem, it's gone to Judea, it's gone to Samaria. And we've seen a few Gentiles come to faith in Christ, like Cornelius, back in chapter 10. But now chapter 13 marks this push this initiative to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to take the gospel where it's never gone before. Now, given that, that this is such a significant event in the life of the church and in the advance of the gospel, we might ask the question, how will Paul and how will Barnabas approach this mission? What will they do? What will they say? What will their message be? 
And remarkably, what we see in Acts chapter 13 is that as they embark on this new initiative, the message does not change. The message is the same. It's the same message that we see over and over again in the book of Acts. It is the message of Jesus. Now, Paul may present this message in different ways. We'll see this as we go through his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. He may present his message in different ways based on the context or the culture that he's addressing, but the message itself never changes. It is the message of Jesus. And so in examining Paul's sermon this morning, we learn this important truth, that the message of Christianity is the message of Jesus. The message of Christianity is the message of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you understand the Christian faith, you're not sure whether you're a Christian or not, or you understand what the Christian gospel is, understand this, because this is so important if you want to grasp Christianity. If you want to understand the Christian faith, then you must understand Jesus. With this truth in mind, I want us to take a closer look at Paul's sermon. And I'm going to divide Paul's sermon up into four parts this morning. First, Jesus promised... Secondly, Jesus condemned. Third, Jesus raised. And fourth, Jesus in freedom. Okay, so first of all, Jesus promised. Look there in chapter 13, and I'm going to read for us again verses 16 to 25, so you'll see where I'm getting this in the passage. Verse 16, So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet... I am not worthy to untie. So you know back you notice back in verse 14 when they arrived in the city, Paul and Barnabas head to the synagogue. This is where the Jews gathered together to worship God. And Paul begins his message, especially given his audience that he's speaking to Jews, he begins his message by attempting to persuade them from the Old Testament scriptures, from their own Bible, that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah. And in doing so, he begins by rehearsing for them, reviewing God's redemptive acts in Israel's history. And notice the emphasis Paul places on what God has done for them in the past. You see it in verse 17. God chose our fathers. God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. God led them out of Egypt. God put put up with them, actually, in the wilderness. Verse 18, God destroyed seven nations in Canaan. Verse 19, He gave them land as an inheritance. Verse 20, He gave them judges. He gave them a king, Saul. Then He removed Saul. Then He raised up David. All of these things, Paul is speaking of all these things that God has done on their behalf for their good. 
But do you see what Paul is saying? He's rehearsing their history in order to build to this one great point. God has done all of these things in your past. He's done all these things on your behalf so that he might do this one great thing, so that he might fulfill the promise of a Redeemer and a Savior. All of these things took place so that God might lay the groundwork to bring you Jesus who would come and deliver you from your sins. You see it there in verse 23. Of this man's offspring, that is David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. And do you see what Paul is saying here? Paul is arguing that Jesus is the central figure of the Bible. If you start at the beginning of the Bible and read all the way through, that everything points to, speaking of the Old Testament coming into the time of Jesus, everything points to the person of Jesus. And even as you go beyond the life of Jesus, everything beyond the life of Jesus points back to Jesus in anticipation, remembering what he did, remembering who he was, in anticipation of his future return. So Christ is the central figure, the focal point of human history. Now that is a remarkable claim. You know what's also remarkable? Jesus believed this about himself. And he didn't shy away from it at all. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, Luke tells us that Jesus spoke in the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth. And he read from the words of the book of Isaiah, he read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was clearly a messianic prophecy. And we read in the passage that everyone was looking intently at Jesus as he read that prophetic word. And then Jesus said to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's not only Paul who preached Jesus. Jesus preached Jesus. He proclaimed himself as the promised one. Recently, I was, uh, this may seem like an odd transition, but recently I was watching the Lego movie with my boys And uh, I really enjoyed it. It's a great movie. And one of the things I noticed in the Lego movie is that there is a gospel that runs through that movie. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I'll give you a little bit of the story so that you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, In the Lego movie, the Legos are headed for destruction because there is a villain. His name is Dr. Business, and he's planning to forever fix the Legos in their place with crazy glue. Uh, presumably, if you're a Lego, that's the worst nightmare, that you would be fixed in place forever with crazy glue. But, in spite of this pending doom that is coming, there is a prophecy. It has been prophesied that there is someone in the future named the Special who will deliver the Legos from the doom of crazy glue. Uh, There is a construction worker. His name is Emmett. He emerges as the Messiah figure uh, very unexpectedly. Nobody expects him to be uh, the special one, but he emerges as the Messiah figure, the special one. But you know what happens in the movie at that point? As this one is identified as the special one, the gospel story that that flows in, in the Lego movie gets turned upside down or inside out. Because after that, at the pinnacle of the movie, when everything is on the line, Emmett discovers that the prophecy was actually just made up. That he's not the special one. That in fact, there is no special one. And rather, the good news, the great hope that everyone should take comfort in is that we're all special. And if we really want to be set free, 
We just need to look inside of ourselves, not outside of ourselves to a special one who would deliver us, but look inside of ourselves and see how special we really are. Now, after this sermon illustration, you may never want to watch a movie with me. Um, I'm always that guy that's trying to discern the philosophical message, you know, underlying the movie. And I'm not, I want to say this, I'm not telling you to go home and burn your Lego movies or to boycott Lego, okay? I think the movie's great. My boys love it. We'll probably watch it a dozen more times at my house. But the underlying message of that movie is not the gospel. It is a popular gospel. It's one that's proclaimed oftentimes in our day to look inside of you, that the promise is inside of you. And as you just realize how special you are, you'll be set free. But that's not the gospel proclaimed in the Bible. And you know, intuitively, we know that's not the gospel. There is something that's right about that. Yes, it is true that we are special. Each one of us have been created in the image of God, have been given unique talents and abilities. And in that sense, it is amazing that we have been created in the image of God and we have uh, value and worth. But there is something else that the Bible teaches about our humanity, about who we are, that we cannot deny. And that is that we are also deeply, deeply flawed. And because we are so deeply flawed, we are not the final solution, nor could we be. In fact, we're the problem. Humanity has made a mess of this world. We see it everywhere. And we know that if we are left to ourselves, we make a mess of our own lives. And so the true gospel doesn't say we can save ourselves, but the true gospel says God has promised to enter into this world that we have broken in order to save us. And this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The gospel says, do not look inside of yourself for the answer, but actually look outside of yourself to one who is promised, who will come and who will deliver you and save you. This is the message that Paul proclaimed in Antioch. The second thing we see in our text this morning is that Jesus is condemned. This is found in verses 26 to 29. Look there and we read these words. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. One of the songs that we sing here at our church is entitled, Beautiful Scandalous Night. I believe this is the first verse, and it reads this way. At the wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree, on that beautiful, scandalous night, you and me were atoned by His blood and forever washed white on that beautiful, scandalous night. I love the first line of that song because it reveals to us that something that we see here in our text this morning, that the cross is at the same time wonderful, tragic, and mysterious. We see the tragedy of the cross in these verses. The tragedy is that those in Jerusalem and their rulers, the very ones to whom the Messiah had been promised, the very ones to whom He came to save and to deliver, that they rejected Him because they did not understand the prophecies, and they condemned and executed Him even though they found no guilt in Him. That's the tragedy of the cross. There's also a wonder in the cross. And the wonder of the cross is that Jesus, who was perfectly innocent, chose to take upon himself the sin 
of sinners and to suffer their death in order that they might be freed from guilt and judgment. Paul speaks of this in verse 28. He says, they found in him no guilt worthy of death. In other words, he was blameless. He was perfect. He was sinless. He always, always, always did the will of his Father. But in verse 27, we see that they condemned him. And in verse 28, we see that they ensured his execution. Now, why did this take place? Why did a man who was perfect and innocent and blameless die the death of a criminal? Martin Luther, who was a great reformer in the history of the church, referred to this as the great exchange. And what's taking place here is that Jesus, who was innocent at the cross, takes the sins of his people upon himself and he suffers their judgment. Listen to the way Martin Luther states this. Some of you have heard this before. I've shared this before. I think it's so compelling. Luther describes what takes place at the cross in this way. He says, and this is, this is like the Father speaking to the Son, quote, Our merciful Father sent His only Son into the world and laid upon Him all the sins of all men, saying, and this is what He's saying to Jesus in that moment, Be Peter, that denier. Be Paul, that persecutor and cruel oppressor. Be David, that adulterer, that sinner who did eat the fruit in Eden, that thief who hanged upon the cross. And briefly, be that person that has committed the sins of all men. See, therefore, that you pay and satisfy for them. Here comes the law, and it says, I find him a sinner, and such a one as has taken upon him the sins of all men, and I see no sins else but in him. Therefore, let him die upon the cross." And so it set upon him and killed him. By this means, the whole world is purged and cleansed from sin and so delivered from death and all evils, end of quote. And this is the wonder of the cross that at the cross, we, we sang about it this morning, right? At the cross, all the sins of all God's people, you think about Peter, you think about Paul, you think about Adam, you think about David, and each one of us, all the sins of all God's people are placed upon Jesus. And he who knew no sin became sin and took our judgment and condemnation at the cross so that we might be free. There's a tragedy in the cross. There's a wonder in the cross. There's also a mystery in the cross. The mystery is that God was both sovereign over the tragedy and the wonder of the cross. You see, what takes place at the cross was not outside of God's control. And Peter makes this point twice in our text in verse 27. He says, they fulfilled the scriptures by condemning him. Verse 29 says, they carried out all that was written of him. We've been going through a series on Wednesday night, and this last Wednesday night we were talking a little bit about this mystery between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And sometimes when we look at the cross, this tragic event, or we look at other events in history, we might think there's a couple of options. One option would be that God was completely sovereign over Jesus' death on the cross, so that those who participated in His death were no more than robots just carrying out His plan. That'd be one option. Or on the other hand, the option is that God was less than in complete control over the events of Jesus' death. So that the men and women who were acting and making decisions to kill Jesus were acting independent of God. And God was just doing His best to respond and manipulate the events and, and work them for His advantage. But I believe the Bible says no to both of those options. And rather, the Bible asserts these two truths at the same time that God was sovereign 
in complete control, and man was responsible. Notice how Peter states this explicitly in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and he says this regarding the death of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see how Peter states those two truths in the same sentence? This was according to the definite plan of God. God had determined it. God had purposed it. And you did it. And you're responsible. Or, as the church in Jerusalem is praying and they're seeking God for His blessing and empowerment, in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, they speak of Jesus' death in this way. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again, we see it. What is taking place at the cross is not by any means outside of God's control. He was not just trying to make the best of the cards that were dealt to him. This was God's purpose from the beginning. He had purposed it. He had planned it. He had determined it. And those who carried it out were making real choices. They were not robots, but they were genuinely expressing the real desires of their own hearts, and they were responsible and would be held to account. You might say, well, how do these two realities reconcile? How do, you, how do you put these two things together? And one thing we need to say is that there's mystery. There's mystery involved in this. How do these two things come together? How does God use the sinful wills of men to accomplish His own purposes? There's mystery. But listen, my friends, this is where we need to worship. In this mystery, where God is acting, where God is sovereign, where God is accomplishing things that we don't fully understand. God takes the most tragic, evil, horrific event in human history, the death of His perfect, innocent Son, and He uses it to accomplish the greatest good, the eternal salvation of all His people. In this, we should see the mystery of the cross, and we should wonder in amazement and worship God for His sovereign mercy. In this, we see in the death of Christ that there's a tragedy, there's a wonder, there's a mystery, and there's a glory. Third, we see that Jesus is raised. Look there in verses 30 to 37, and we read these words. But God raised Him from the dead, and for many days He appeared to those who had come up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now His witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption." So Paul goes on to declare not only the promise of Jesus and the death of Jesus, but the good news, and that's what he calls it, the good news that Jesus did not only die, but he was raised. In verse 30, he says explicitly, God raised him from the dead. And one of the things you notice here in our text is that Paul is insistent that this resurrection, this idea of resurrection is not just a good story with a good moral. 
This is not a religious myth or fable. But Paul is insistent on the fact that this was a literal, physical death and a literal and physical resurrection. Jesus was literally raised from the dead. And that's why Paul places such an emphasis on eyewitnesses who could attest to this historical reality. You see it there in verse 31. For many days, Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. It's like Paul is inviting his audience, right? Because that those witnesses would have still been alive at this time. He's inviting them, go and check, ask them, did they see Jesus? They did. Paul makes this point again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. When he writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And here it is, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. See, He's pointing them to that. They're still alive. You can go and ask them. And He says, Though some have fallen asleep, Then he says he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. If you look at the sermon as a whole in Antioch, really what you'll see is that the emphasis of Paul's message is on the resurrection. I wish we had more time to unpack all that Paul says here regarding the resurrection. But let me just say, I think there are many reasons why Paul places such an emphasis on the resurrection. But one significant reason is that Paul believed Christianity stood or fell on the historical veracity of the resurrection. If Jesus was truly raised from the dead, if Jesus truly conquered death, then Paul believed this was incontrovertible evidence that all that Jesus said was true. Then Jesus truly was the Son of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not sure about Christianity, let me say that this is a compelling apologetic or defense for the Christian faith. One of the things we know about Paul, especially prior to his conversion to Christianity, is that Paul did not want to believe this. You know, that's the thing about facts. Facts can be very frustrating. Facts can be very stubborn and irritating. Just a few facts that may be frustrating to us. July and August in Augusta are hot and humid, right? Now, we may wish it was something else, but it's just a fact, right? We can't change it. If I don't take time to put exercise into my schedule, I'm not going to be in good shape, right? I may not like that, but that's a fact. My boys are actually learning this right now. It doesn't matter how many times we see it in a movie or dream about it or night or visualize it in our minds. We cannot run as fast as the Flash. We're not as strong as the Hulk and we can't fly like Superman. That's a fact, right? You can wish it would be something else, but that's reality. Facts are stubborn things. And listen, for the Apostle Paul, the reality, the fact of Jesus' resurrection was an inconvenient truth. He did not want to believe it. Paul, prior to his conversion, hated Christians. He was committed to persecuting and killing Christians until they were stamped out. He believed the resurrection was a farce. But once the resurrected Christ confronted him, he could not deny the undeniable. Paul's life was radically changed, and you can read about it in the Bible. Jesus had been raised from the dead, and that changed everything for the Apostle Paul. 
And what Paul is saying to those in Antioch here, and what he's saying to us even this morning, is that this, re- this uh, reality of the resurrection is true. Whether it's convenient for you or not is really beside the point. The only thing that matters is, is it true or not? And if it's true, then it changes everything. Fourth and finally, we see Jesus in freedom. This is found in verses 38 to 41. Look there and we read these words. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. So this is the message of salvation. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that by His life and His death and His resurrection, we may know true freedom. Freedom from the guilt and penalty of sin and freedom from the condemnation of the law. You see it there in verses 38 and 39. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is very important because it is this truth that separates Christianity from every other world religion and cult. Every other world religion says that the law will lead to life. So here's the law, here's the rules, here's the things you must do. Keep them and you will live. Christianity is the only religion that is truly honest about our condition as men and women. Christianity does comply and says, yes, it is true. If you do the law, you will live. But no one is really able to keep the law. No one is really able to keep all the rules. Because we are inherently wicked, we're inherently sinful and rebellious, and therefore we will be doomed because we will be condemned by the very law we claim to keep. This is the great dilemma facing every man and woman The law is good. The law is right. The law is holy. We know what it is. We have it written on our conscience. We know what is right. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what is good for ourselves and for others. The only problem is that we're not able to really keep it as we ought. If you think you can, you're just fooling yourself. That's why Jesus came. Jesus was the only man who fully obeyed, fully fulfilled the law. He never sinned. He always did the perfect will of His Father in thought, in emotion, in action, in deed. In every way, He honored His Father. And this is the other side of that great exchange that we were talking about. You know, Luther speaks of the great exchange. Part of that exchange is that at the cross, sin is placed upon Christ. Our sin is placed upon Him and He takes our judgment. But that's only half of the exchange. That's only half of the story. There's another part. And the other part is that at the cross, Jesus then, through faith in Him as we trust in Him, He grants to us His perfect record of righteousness. Every act of obedience, every time He submitted to the Father, every time He did the Father's will, every time He faithfully sought the Father in obedience, that perfect record of righteousness is credited to us. So that now in Christ, it's not that inwardly I'm made righteous in the sense that I will never sin again. But even though I'm still a sinner, and even though I still fail, the perfect record of righteousness of Jesus is credited to me so that when God looks upon me, He does not see my sin, 
but he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And he accepts me even as he accepts his son. What Paul is saying here as he preaches to the people in Antioch is that the law could never do that. The law could never free us from the guilt and penalty of sin. The law can never make us righteous before God because we can't keep the law. Instead, the law, your conscience, reveals sin to you. It makes you aware of sin so that you might stop trusting yourself to make yourself righteous before God and start trusting in Jesus, who is the only one who can make you righteous before God. Now, how does that happen? How do you receive that? How do you experience that? Paul's very clear, isn't he? He says it's by faith, by everyone who believes. Do you see that in the passage? Everyone who believes. So it's not by doing the law, but it's by believing in Jesus. It's not by attempting and and trying to do or accomplish what we cannot do, but by believing in Jesus who has already done and accomplished what we could not do. It's so important that we see this truth and that we be reminded of it over and over again because we are so uh, easily distracted from it. You know, it's remarkable that as Paul is preaching this message to those in Antioch and Pisidia, and he is so clearly proclaiming the free grace and mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ, that it's just a few years later that Paul has to write them and warn them that they are forsaking this gospel. Antioch and Pisidia is actually located in a larger region referred to as Galatia. And then as we go into, I believe next week, we'll be looking at Paul going to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. All of these cities were in the region of Galatia. And Paul writes a letter a few years later to the Galatians. And the whole point of that letter is that they are forsaking the gospel. They are beginning to trust their works. They're beginning to trust the things they can do to make themselves right before God, rather than the free grace of God in Christ. Martin Luther referred to us as, in in speaking of this this propensity we have to trust our works and not to trust Christ, he refers to us as merit mongers. It's an interesting term, isn't it? The idea is that we're always trying to accrue merit to ourselves. We're always trying to check off the boxes. We're always trying to point God to all the good things we've done so that He will accept us. We're always believing that we are a better Savior than Jesus. And that's why we must be reminded again and again of this gospel. Paul writes to the Galatians a few years later and he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Friends, are you free from the penalty and guilt of sin this morning? Are you free from all that the law could not free you from? If not, the only way you experience that freedom is through faith in Jesus. Trust Him. Believe in Him. This is the good news of salvation. And you will be made right before God. Finally, I want to point out that as Paul concludes this message in Antioch, this message about Jesus, which he refers to in verse 26 as a message of salvation, and in verse 32 as a message of good news, Paul concludes this message of good news, this message of salvation with a warning. You see it there in verse 40. He says, beware. 
And then Paul cites the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As Paul cites this passage from the prophet Habakkuk, really what's taking place here is that when Habakkuk wrote these words, the prophet Habakkuk was warning Israel that because of their sin, God was raising up the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were a fierce and powerful nation. And he's saying, listen, you're scoffing. You're scoffing at the Word of God. You're scoffing at obeying God and following Him. But God is going to do a work, a work you can't imagine, by raising up the Babylonians and bringing judgment upon the nation if you don't turn from your sins and repent. As Paul cites this passage here, To those in Antioch, you see what he's saying. Paul is essentially saying, if God judged them, if God judged the nation of Israel because they fail to heed the words of the prophets, how much more will he judge us with severity if we reject this good news, this message of salvation? Paul is saying the Redeemer has come. He's come to save us from sin and judgment that we deserve for rebelling against God. But if we reject Him, We will be on our own. We will be on our own to account before God for our rebellion. We will be on our own to make a defense before God for our waywardness. We will be on our own to suffer the consequences for our sin. Paul concludes this message, this glorious message of good news and salvation with this warning. Beware. If you reject this good news, beware. May we all pay heed to that warning. Let's pray. Father, we do ask and pray now that you would help us to grasp and to internalize the significance of this wonderful good news, this good news of salvation and also to grasp and internalize the danger of walking away from it, of scoffing at it, of treating it with indifference. Father, we confess that we are broken in so many ways and in need of salvation. And we thank You for the great promise of deliverance in Christ. We thank You for how so gloriously and wondrously and mistressly, mysteriously, you accomplished this salvation in the death and resurrection of your Son. May each of us look to Him in faith and find the freedom that He offers from sin and condemnation and death. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.